David killed the giant Goliath, severed his head, and carried it to King Saul as a sign of his victory. Whose son are you? asked the king to the nobody. I am David, the son of Jesse, your servant from the tiny town of Bethlehem. David would not be a political threat to Saul. His family meant nothing. His hometown was nothing. Saul would not let David return to his father Jesse's house, but instead thought, this young man could win me victories. And so from that day on, King Saul included the boy David in his court. David wasn't royal born, but he was making connections. You see, King Saul's son, Jonathan, loved David. He promised allegiance to David. Jonathan, this son of a king, pledged loyalty to the one person who was truly a threat to the king's power. Jonathan therefore gave David his robe, his armor, his sword, his bow, his belt. And David went out in war and was successful wherever Saul sent him. As a result, Saul set him over the army, and all of the people applauded. Everyone who met David loved David. Perhaps you know people like this. David was admired and popular. David wrote songs, and then he performed them, and then people asked him to sing them again. God always seemed to be at David's side. And when he would come home from battle, the women would come out to meet the victorious warriors, and they would sing, and they would dance. And they would meet King Saul with tambourines and songs of joy and musical instruments. But they were really there for David. The women sang to each other, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And King Saul was furious. They have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me only thousands. What more can he have than the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day on, and as David grew in popularity, Saul tried to murder him multiple times. He tried to pin David to a wall with a spear, and when David escaped, because God seemed to always be with him, Saul decided to kill David in a less obvious manner. So Saul said to David, how would you like to be the son-in-law of the king? David said, well, I'm way, way too lowly for that. And he said, oh, no, no, you definitely want to be the son-in-law of the king. So go fight the Philistines. Fight and fight and fight and lead the army and win, and I will give you my daughter Mirab as a wife. For Saul didn't want to kill David himself. That might be messy. 
So let's just let the Philistines deal with him. But when this didn't work, when David was successful in battle, when David was not killed by the Philistines, but he was growing even more popular with the people, Saul just very quickly married Mirab off to another man and pretended like the first negotiation hadn't happened. But he still wanted to get rid of David. And he decided to try the same thing a second time. Mirab's younger sister, Saul's daughter, Michal, had fallen in love with David. And we don't know whether Michal's young love was reciprocated. We just know that Michal loved David. And Saul was pleased. So Saul offered his daughter Michal to David. David, I know you have come from nothing, and you do not have the wealth to pay the bride price that my daughter Michal deserves. So just go kill a hundred Philistine men, and then bring their foreskins back to me as proof that you did so. Surely David would die in the attempt to kill a hundred Philistines. But soon enough, Saul had a pile of foreskins in his royal court. And so Saul was forced to give David his daughter, Michal, as a wife. And when Saul realized that the Lord was with David, and even worse, that Saul's daughter, Michal, truly loved David, Saul got even more afraid and jealous. Saul deepened in his hatred of David. And then the Philistines decided to come out and battle Israel. And as often as they came out to battle, well, David continued to have more success than anybody else in Saul's court. David's fame became very great and extended beyond just their small country. So Saul sent servants to David's house. Again, he knows better than to try to kill him himself, but he's sending some servants to do it. Michal heard of this plan and saved her husband's life, letting him down through the window and making the bed up to look as if David were sleeping in it, sick. When the ruse was discovered, Saul was livid. And David never returned to Michal. Instead, he became an outlaw, gathering rebels. He married again, and again, and again, and again, and again. And then David fights a war that results in the death of Michal's father, Saul, and the death of Michal's brother, Jonathan. Jonathan and Michal had both risked their lives on David's behalf. And the result was that David led the country into a civil war and overthrew their father. 
Meanwhile, Saul had married Michal off to another man, Palti. And we don't know whether Michal loved Palti, but we do know that Palti loved Michal. For after the death of Saul and Jonathan, when Saul's son Ishbael was temporarily on the throne, David sent messengers to the new king saying, Give me my wife Michal, because I paid for her at the price of 100 foreskins. So Ishbael sent for his sister and took her from her new husband. And her husband went with her, weeping as he walked behind her all the way to David. The commander of the army had to muster up his strength to order him home before he complied. So David got his trophy wife. He consolidated his power. He became king over all of Israel and Judah. He built a capital city, renaming it in his own honor, Jerusalem, city of David. And David was shrewd. He needed to keep his popularity. He needed to prove that he was beloved by God, God's new chosen leader. Because God had chosen Saul, but David had defeated him. So David needed to keep a firm grasp on his new power. No one, no upstart, was going to take this unified kingdom from him the way he had taken it from Saul. So he looks for a source of great power. There was a movie made about this several thousand years later. For David finds this power in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark, which Indiana Jones would later look away from so as not to be killed, was powerful. The Ark was so powerful that it would kill someone who accidentally touched it. And David was initially terrified of this power. And yet he craved it. He wanted this power. He went to get the ark, and as the ark was moving, and it killed someone who reached out to steady the ark, David said, ah, too dangerous. But when the man he assigned to care for the ark discovered that his family was prospering, his family was blessed. David decided that the blessing and the danger were very close together. And he couldn't risk having that caretaker of the ark be more blessed than he was. David needed that blessing. David was not about to lose it. So David brought the ark to Jerusalem. He made burnt offerings and offerings of well-being. He blessed the people and distributed food among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, men and women, and saying, let them eat cake. And then he gave them cake cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins. And the people were ecstatic. And David danced ecstatically. David wore a linen ephod, which is a ceremonial garment like an apron. So if you stayed still in this apron that was all you were wearing... 
if you stayed still and reverent and serious, perhaps your genitals would remain covered, even though your entire backside was revealed. But if you danced in this linen ephod, well... Mikkel watched her first husband through her window, and she was not happy. Mikkel remembered her father, the former king. Mikkel remembered her brothers, how even the one who loved David ended up dead. She remembered her sacrifice of their own marriage just to keep David alive. She remembered her second husband, from whom she'd been taken without consultation or agency. She remembered David's other wives and concubines and the women who celebrated his every victory. And she remembered how David just ate all of that power and glory up. So Michal despised David. Acting like a king, are we? How you honored yourself today honored yourself vulgarly, shamelessly, uncovering yourself before all the adoring, commonplace, not royal-born women. And David argued back, these servant girls will always hold me in honor. The Lord chose me instead of your father. The Lord chose me instead of your father's entire household. I am king now. And Michal was moved to the edge of the king's harem, never again to be known or loved by any man. She had no children to the day of her death. And thus, King Saul's line of healthy male descendants, challengers to the throne, was extinguished. So today, we're talking about leadership. (laughs) And preachers throughout the ages have been tempted to turn narratives like these into tales with simple morals. Leadership lessons from the Bible. Leadership lessons from King David. We sometimes treat the Bible like Aesop's fables. Do this, don't do that. This is what God wants, and it's always obvious and easy to discern. And David is narratively in the right. That is exactly what his admirers, the people who wrote First and Second Samuel, want us to think. But he's not always right. I remember being in a Bible study in college, and it was an intergenerational Bible study, which I loved, intergenerational like this church. But one day I compared King David to Bill Clinton, because they had both had affairs in which the power dynamics would better be described as assault. And a woman in my Bible study was horrified. No, 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 no. King David was nothing like Bill Clinton. David was a man after God's own heart. Well, 
David was a man after God's own heart, and he was a complicated, sinful person. Simul Eustace et Peccator, simultaneously saint and sinner. We could read all of David's story and try to categorize it as, well, this is good David and this is bad David. We could even try to look at his whole life and say, well, he was a man after God's own heart, so that means everything he did was good. But I think that the moral, if there is one, is that we humans are complex. Our stories are complicated. Our lives are messy. It's not always clear if God's blessing or favoring one individual over another. We can't always tell the difference between just luck and God's intervention. But God can work in and through us. God does work in the middle of the mess. And that does not mean that everything is right or good. It is never as simple as God favors this person or despises that person. It's never as easy as this person is anointed by God and therefore anything they do is right. I do not know how long twill be, nor what the future holds for me. These were words by Charles Tinley, early 20th century, father of African-American hymnody. And in the midst of uncertainty and doubt and confusion and not knowing what's going on in our lives or in the lives of those around us, Tenley asserts, this I know, if Jesus leads me, I will get home someday. Harder yet may be the fight, and right may often yield to might. Wickedness a while may reign, and Satan's cause may seem to gain. But there is a God that rules above, with hand of power and heart of love. So may we sing, and so may it be.